Welcome to the Pogle Podcast. The Pogle Podcast is a new conversation from the Pogle Project that celebrates innovative educators both in and out of the classroom. You will hear about what inspired them to become teachers and how the practice of student-centered education transformed their classrooms and improved outcomes for their students. Learn how they're innovating outside of the classroom as well. Join us as we think out loud with Pogol educators, researchers, and others working to transform teaching and learning for the 21st century. Our guest today is Dr. Brian Gilbert. Brian received his Bachelor of Sciences in Chemistry from the University of Arizona and a PhD in Physical Chemistry from Indiana University. After postdoctoral work at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, he was a faculty member at Coastal Carolina University in Conway, South Carolina for five years before coming to Linfield, Oregon. He's been at Linfield since 2001 and has taught many different chemistry courses, but mostly general chemistry, physical chemistry, and the art and science of brewing. His research interests are centered on developing nanoparticle-based sensors and drug delivery mechanisms and testing them using lasers. No sharks, though, he says. He enjoys playing volleyball, cycling, hanging out with his two golden retrievers, Kingsley, the other is Tonks, and brewing beer. His wife is a substitute teacher in McMinnville, Oregon, and his daughter recently graduated with a vocal performance major at Pacific University in Forest Grove. Brian and Alex, thank you very much for being here today. And Alex, I will now pass the baton over to you. All right. So um, I'm interviewing Brian Gilbert for our uh, Pogo podcast. Brian teaches at Linfield University in Oregon. Brian, can you tell us a little bit about Linfield and where you teach and what you do there? Sure. So, so Linfield University uh, is a private university. It's pretty small, about 1,700 students um, in McMinnville, Oregon. So we're in the middle of the Oregon wine country and just south of Portland, which is also known as Birvana, among other things right now. The largest major on our campus is pre-nursing. So our chemistry courses and biology courses tend to have a large number of pre-nursing students in them. Um, I've taught a lot of different courses at Linfield, everything from general chemistry, instrumental methods of analysis, physical chemistry, um, to things like an inquiry seminar, which is our freshman writing course, and um, study abroad courses. And then also I teach a course that is primarily intended for non-science majors out, um, as an upper division elective, a course about um, the art and science of brewing. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll want to come back to that in a little bit, I'm sure. So, so tell me a little bit about the department in which you teach. Um, so you have a lot of nursing students who come through your general chemistry. What kinds of class size do you have and, uh, you know, chemistry, you know, number of chemistry types of students that come through as well. Sure. So, so within the department, we have a chemistry major and then there's a shared biochemistry molecular biology major with the biology department. We have pre-nursing students have to take a year long science course and it's not specified what it is, what they have to take. Um, but they either take principles of biology in the biology department or general chemistry 
from our department, and we just started a general organic biochemistry course last year. And so the, those introductory chemistry courses tend to be no more than 30 students in a section. So we had one section of the GOB course last fall last and spring, and I think it was three sections of general chemistry in the fall, which we're doing again this year. And, and it usually goes down to about two in the spring. Okay. Uh, upper division courses get much smaller. So physical chemistry, the first semester, which is the only one that's required for uh, biochemistry majors, usually has about 12 to 19 students in it. And the second semester, which is only required for chemistry majors, drops down to something smaller, maybe seven or eight students. Okay. So you, you, I mean, but in general, you're dealing with, with small class sizes or largest somewhere around 30, right. but yeah, your, your background, you were an undergrad at the university of Arizona. You got a PhD from university of Indiana, two really big schools um, yeah. where you probably didn't have, you know, small classes. So what drew you to teaching at a small school like Linfield? So, so honestly, when I, when I was a postdoc, um, one of my postdoc mentors sent me to, I think it was the um, count, Council on Undergraduate Research meeting that was held, I think, in, in Raleigh. Um, I can't remember the name of this, which school it was in. And um, that was where I got the opportunity to actually talk with people who were at schools like where I am now. And I really, I really liked what I was hearing about them, especially sort of the mix of teaching and research that you could do and the emphasis on teaching, really, that that, that was important. And so that's what drew me to smaller schools. I ended up applying initially as sort of a, a, a practice um, application to the place that ended up being my first job, which was Coastal Carolina University. Um, in South Carolina, outside Myrtle Beach. And um, that was actually a really great place because I started with a colleague, John Goodwin there, who's still there, um, who really helped me think about teaching at a small school uh, and also how to, how to get research programs at schools like that going. So when you started out, your personal experience was at in large classes. Right. And you sort of had talked to people about what it's like to teach at a small school. What did you think that that was going to be like? And did it, you know, turn out like that? Or, you know, what, what, what were your first couple of years at Coastal like? Well, those, yeah, those were interesting because in a sense we were brought, John and I were brought in to build the chemistry major up because it had really just started. And I started out, teaching the way I had been taught. So I, I was really careful to write up really good lecture notes and then write those on a chalkboard in the, in the classroom while, you know, whether it was Gen Chem or PCHEM, which I was teaching my first year there. And at some point um, in second semester PCHEM, I think I, I only had two students in the class and one of them was sick one day and I'm wondering why I'm up at the chalkboard lecturing to the one student. At the summer after that first year was actually when I first heard about Pogel. And so this was 1996. And John went probably to a madcap meeting or something like that. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. And he came back 
really enthused by this thing, along with stacks of paper that were, I think, some of the initial attempts at writing at, at Rick and John Farrell's GenCam activities. Right. And I looked at them and I couldn't understand what in the world <laughs> they were. Right. And that I, is I, a I that is a common that's yeah. a common response. <laughs> right. Right. It's like, what well, do I do with this? Well. I actually, I looked at them and thought, well, the students can just answer these questions. What's the, pur what's the purpose? What, what's the point? <laughs> um, I, I know a lot better than that now. And we ended up talking about this a lot and essentially doing um, uh, peer-led team learning while I was at Coastal, right? So we would get, we would hire student TAs who'd been really successful in the course to meet with groups of students outside of class time and work with them on sets of problems. And we got involved with that for quite a while. And it wasn't really until, so I left Coastal in 2001 to come to Linfield. And it wasn't until 2004 when I went to my very first Ogle workshop that I figured out what those, free, those activities were for. And, Right. what the intention was and it was that, that was eye-opening so you when you when you're handed a bunch of activities and somebody says this is really good stuff you should try this and you look at it and you don't really understand what to do so what was the, what was sort of the, that aha moment did it come at the workshop did it come while you were trying it out stuff out with your students it, it came at the workshop and um pretty sure the the facilitators for that workshop this was at university of redlands were Rick Moog, Vicky Minderhoot, and Jim Spencer. Mm -hmm. And and the real aha moment for me was when Rick ran essentially a a fishbowl where I was a participant with other physical chemists working through activities in the green book or working through an activity in the green book. Right. Yeah, the sort of that first foray into thermodynamics that right. right. And, and that's when I started to really understand what the activities were intended to do. Because even though we were all PhD physical chemists, we had to really talk with each other to make sure we agreed on what we were answering in, you know, in the critical thinking questions. And it was, it was a really good experience, right? Um, mm -hmm. I ended up coming out of that workshop, deciding that I was going to use those activities in, in the first semester of physical chemistry at Linfield. So, um, so now you're armed with the green book and, and, a, and a much better understanding and you go back to Linfield. What was, what was the response like from the students? So the students, the nice thing was that they were all students I had had in general chemistry a few years before. Mm -hmm. And again, it, it was a small class and they actually liked the fact that there was more interaction and that I wasn't lecturing. And it was far from perfect. I, I did all the things probably wrong that I, sh that I could have done. Um, you know, I, I, thought, I thought the roles were, were sort of silly. So I said, no, nah, I'm not gonna do roles. But we muddled through and you know, there were students who, who have talked to me years later saying that they didn't think they would have made it through the course if we had done it a different way. 
I kind I kind of know differently because they were they're smart kids, but they really they really appreciated that. Right, right. So I did see the response for in, in yeah. physical chemistry. And 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 so, what about for the rest of the department? I mean, it's it your department is is fairly small at Linfield. Yeah, we have five faculty and right. a couple lab coordinators. Right. And so, and so one of my colleagues had, had gone to that workshop with me. Oh, okay. So that helps. Right. And, you know, I had pretty much free reign to do whatever I wanted in any of my courses. There was no real pushback from any of my colleagues about it. And then, I don't know if it was the next year or two years later, I don't remember the dates of these workshops, but we started hosting workshops at Linfield. And very quickly, all but one of my colleagues had been to a Pogo workshop. Um, and, and they were they were all on board with this? Uh... They, they were okay with it. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, some of them never adopted Pogo in any way. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of them adopted aspects of uh, cooperative group work in courses. Right. Uh, I had a colleague at the time who also taught physical chemistry. Um, that's not, he, he retired, so he's not around anymore. But he um, started using Pogel in the second semester of physical chemistry. And by, I think, 2009, we decided to use Pogel in general chemistry. So general chemistry, that was a cooperative de decision in the department to, right, right. to go that route. Um, and how did that, how did that go, you, you know, going from, you know, teaching your anywhere from two to 15 students to now a class of 30? Right. So that was a rougher transition. And some of that was students who didn't think we were teaching them. Right. Uh, right. So that, that's sort of a common thing that you hear are, my tuition is so expensive, but you're not teaching me. Right. And so we, if you're not at the class, if you're not at the chalkboard, you're not teaching me. Is, is that right? That the, and so, yeah. and so the, the good thing was um, I had managed to sort of stay involved with workshops, especially ones that were hosted at Linfield and had gotten to know a lot of the facilitators. And from going to those, I could bring tools back to my colleagues to sort of help everybody get past those types of student comments. You know, sort of, I, one I really remember was, was Andre Stramanis, uh, who, who would say, he would make sure he would tell the students, okay, I'm gonna lecture for a little while now, <laughs> right? So you, you take maybe five minutes to, to lecture about something so that you're sending the message to the students, oh, this is, this is what a normal college course would be like. And so we've kept using Pogol in Gen Chem since then. And I think at this point, it's sort of institutionally the type of thing where the students know that's going to happen. They don't all like it still. Right. And that's okay. But they go through with it, right? It's sort of, all right, I have to go through and, and do this. And this will have to work for me. <laughs> right. Um, so outside of your department, do like so you have a number of students who are nursing or biology students. Do you, did you, when your department sort of went down this alternate path, was there you know some 
difficulty or were they, you know, were, were most of your colleagues in other departments like, okay, you know, this is what they're going to do for us? Yeah. So as I've said, since Linfield, I don't remember how many workshops Linfield has hosted. Um, we haven't in a while, mm -hmm. but we were able to get a lot of our colleagues from other departments in biology and physics, mathematics. I even had a colleague from, from uh, modern languages come to one, mm -hmm. um, go to the workshops. And while, while none of them have really ever adopted Pogol, I think it's fit well at Linfield with the idea that, especially in the sciences, many of us want to make our courses as active on the student's end as possible. So they see what we're doing. And for example, one of my physics colleagues essentially is doing sort of a blended lab lecture physics course, right? Where the students can work on making measurements and then they talk about what they've done within the context of whatever the, the learning goals for that day happen to be, if that makes right. sense. Well, yes, yeah, so, but I mean, I guess the, the, the big point here is, is that having brought Pogel onto the Linfield campus, you know, through these workshops, you're at least influencing, you know, colleagues and at the very least, they begin to understand what you're doing. Right. That, you know, you're not just abdicating your, your role as teacher. Instead, you know, you're facilitating learning. That's what I always try and tell my students is that I'm not a teacher. That's not what I'm paid to do. I think that's one of the sort of the difficult things that you have to disabuse college students about is that now it's, you know, not my job to just present everything and then you just spew it back. Right. And, and I guess one of the things, well, two things we have done is we've continued to send our new colleagues to three-day workshops. Mm -hmm. So when we hire somebody in new, we, we send them to a three-day workshop so they can at least understand what we're trying to do in general chemistry. And then I've written Pogol activities about why we do Pogol and use those in, in courses and give them things like some of the data that shows what, you know, what happens if you are in a Pogol course versus a traditional course. And I think that helps with the students somewhat, at least. So students really respond to, to that kind of a presentation, if you will, or, you know, doing that kind of activity? Yeah. So they, they unpack the data and, you know, sort of figure out that, all right, if we do this, it's more likely that I'm going to do better than I would if Gilbert was up there lecturing because <laughs> he's actually a really bad lecturer um, <laughs> and that it, that I might even retain it. And right. I have some evidence of that. So I've had a number of pre-nursing students. So they start for two years at, Lin at, at our campus in McMinnville and our nursing campus is in Portland. So after two years with us, they transfer to the nursing campus. And I've had a number of them write to me about how things that either I've said or that they experienced in class popped up in their heads, especially when they were taking dosage quizzes. <laughs> so, right. Which I always think is really, I want my nurses, nurses to know about dosage quizzes really well. Right, right, right. Yes, it's, it's very good. Yeah. So beyond using Pogol in the classroom, um, you've been a contributing member to the Pogol community, 
Um, you know, you've hosted uh, workshops at, at, at Linfield, you've done some regional and uh, national things, you know, given workshops across the country and in other countries, as I recall. You and I uh, went to Canada one time uh, back when travel was easy. So what's, your, what's been your motivation to work in the Pogo community and sort of participate in activities with, with the, that larger group? Sure. I guess the main thing I've done within the Pogo community is somehow become a facilitator. And, and so one thing that, that, and this is purely selfish, the, the thing that's selfish about it is I learn so much from my co-facilitators when I'm facilitating at a workshop that I've, that that's one of the most valuable things to me about doing it, right? Is right. I get a lot of really great ideas from the other facilitators about how could I handle something that pops up. I also, I also know how much being through a workshop meant for me in sort of seeing the light about why I might do this in my course. And I, I like to help other people go through that. Right. And I know not everybody who goes through a workshop is, is going to jump in, but there are people who do, and I like helping them get there. Right. Yeah. You're not going to convert everybody, but it's nice when people, when you watch other people get that aha moment of like, huh, this might work. Yeah. And, and honestly, there's nothing like a Pogo workshop um, that I've ever experienced. Right. It's a, as you know, it's a lot of work, both for the participants and the facilitators. And, and I think the really great thing about it is everybody will come out of that getting a, an idea really of, of how to do it. Because we're not up there lecturing to them about how you do Pogol, how you form groups, right? You model everything. Right. You, you come away both uh, exhausted and energized, would True. you say? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Okay. I want to turn now to your, uh, your interest in brewing and beer. So beyond the normal interest that most people have in beer, um, you've actually teach this course in brewing. Can you describe what that is like in a little bit more detail? Um, so the course is called the art and science of brewing. And one of the things that's part of the Linfield general education curriculum is that students need to take an upper division course in what we call the Linfield curriculum. So these, these are science courses, history courses, other things like that, but it has to be outside of their major. And I actually created the course when I was coming back from a sabbatical because I needed to have an extra course to teach. And I've been interested in brewing since um, my wife decided I needed a hobby um, <laughs> back when I was in graduate school. So a bunch of my friends and I started, started brewing in graduate school and I kept it up, you know, through all that time and decided to propose a course where students would learn different things about chemistry in the context of brewing. So, so it's not a course where you would recognize, oh, I'm learning about balancing equations or I'm learning about moles or things like that. 
Um, it's sort of more a course where if you, if you take this class, you're going to know more about the science of brewing than most um, home brewers will know. Okay. So, so is it's sort of like advanced home brewing kind of thing? It's or? sort of like that. Yeah. And, and I guess, so an example of the type of thing that might happen would be, we'll talk about malting. So taking grains, right, that aren't starchy and turning them into, into things that are and getting them ready to be used in fermentation. And so we can talk about the biochemical and chemical transformations that are happening there. And that's really opportunities for students who are maybe art majors or history majors to start learning things about macromolecules. So talking about starches and proteins and things like that and giving them models to sort of differentiate between them. So that's where some of the pogol activities come in, right? Sort of cartoon models of, of proteins or starches and things like that and having them learn what those things actually are. So you, so you have written pogol activities for this course? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I've never sent, I've never sent them in for anything because I, I don't know how many people actually would use them because I don't know how many courses there are like this. Right. So uh, there are no prerequisites for this course or, is, or do they have to take general chemistry before? No, there are no prerequisites. So, so everything that is chemistry in it, they have to learn within the context of the course. Okay. And then, um, but I noticed, is this like a 300 level course? Is that, or right. it's... Right. So, so the prerequisites for it are that they've taken a year long natural world course, which are our, which is our, the science part of our general ed, ed curriculum. Um, so at some point they have to have had an NW course, which all infield students have to do anyway. E even the science majors would do this sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So for a science major, right, general chemistry is an NW. Oh, okay. All right, so, so it, I understand. So they've taken general chemistry if they're a science major or they've taken one of these other natural right. world courses. Okay. So this, this has some sort of foundational that helps them, but now you're a physical chemist and you're teaching like biochemistry or molecular microbiology, you know, how does that come about? And, you know, do your colleagues in those other disciplines sort of, you know, scratch their head or sort of wonder what on earth can Gil, you know, Gilbert do? He's not trained in this field. Right. Well, and, and that's true. I'm not trying to teach microbiology or biochemistry, right? I, I really restrict it to um, my parts of it, to the types of things that if you really wanted to get into books about brewing and home brewing, um, because they, they do get quite uh, content heavy sometimes, what do you need to know about some of these words that they're using. I, I do invite my colleagues to come in and talk more in depth about that. So I've had a biochemist come in and, and talk more about proteins, for example. Okay. Um, and I've had a microbiologist come in and talk about the role of yeast and other things in fermentation. Interesting. Um, so you know, in this course, then do the students actually get to brew their own beer 
is there a lab component to this or is it? So we brew four times during the course. Three of those are really sort of, I'd, I'd call experiments um, with beer to give them ideas about what different types of hops or, or how much hops you add at different times change the beer, what different types of yeast might do, and what different types of malts do. So they basically in those, right, you, you do kind of con controlled experiments. So I have maybe seven groups of students brewing. And if we're doing the yeast one, they start with all the same fermentables, malt extracts and, and malts, and the same hops, and they're supposed to add them at the same times, but they end up using different yeasts to ferment it. And then a couple of weeks later, we can taste those and unpack what the different yeasts did in terms of flavor and other characteristics. Okay. So we do and, that. And there's a, there's a pogol activity that goes along with that to uh, get them to characterize their... So, so we also do tastings um, mm -hmm. that are pogol-ish, but they're not really pogol activities, I would say, um, other than asking them questions about what they're tasting. So, so the types of tastings we do, some of them are focused on different styles of beer and unpacking you know, what, what those styles represent. But we also do one where we spike beer with off flavors. So things that show up in, if there are errors or, or problems in brewing. Oh, okay. So something's been, something wasn't cleaned in your, in the previous uh, brew and has shown up in the next batch or something like that. That I mean, kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So if there's an infection, um, right, if some kind of bacterial infection occurs or if maybe the boil wasn't vigorous enough or if something is going wrong in fermentation, like not the yeast not being healthy or something like that. Right. Yeah. Now, do all of your students have to be 21 in order to participate in the... Yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, and then I understand you also, you've run like a travel course. Is that related to this brewing course where you, you, yeah. you travel? Is that, a, is that the same course or is it a, is it a different... It's slightly different because I usually co-teach with somebody else. Okay. So I've gone to Europe twice with it. And um, I, did, I did have the students do the pen and paper pogol activities for the course. Hands-on activities were different because, you know, we couldn't hang out in Germany and, or Czech Republic or Belgium and brew. Um, but we could do the tastings and we would do things like that. And then I had a colleague who was from Modern Languages who would um, we'd go and learn about the different cultures there. So we'd you know, visit different places in, in Czech Republic or Germany or Belgium and have students learn cultural things. And sometimes it actually caught up with beer. Um, I also did one in New Zealand with a colleague from our exercise science department. And with her, we kind of did a combination of beer, wine, and food. So we wrote, mm -hmm. I wrote Pogel activities about, about food and wine. And then we did do some hands-on things there where we did things like make cheese and yogurt and stuff like that. Hmm. Okay. Um, so if you had one thing that you've learned about teaching that you would like to share with the rest of the world, <laughs> what would that one thing be? Uh, if you're going to do Pogol, use rolls.
<laughs> you learned that the hard way early on, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. So how did you, how did you manage doing that with, um, in the online world that we all switched to in the, in the spring semester? So, so, um, I, I designated different students in their groups to be reporters. And one of my classes, physical chemistry, we ran synchronously using Zoom, using breakout rooms. Um, and I had reporters um, writing out answers to some of the critical thinking questions that they were doing um, on Google Docs that I could monitor. And I could bounce into the rooms and things like that um, and asking questions. I generally had somebody be a reader in each group so that they were reading the activity together um, and had somebody who was the manager who was making sure that they were on time and what else. And I, and I had a cheerleader who was there to ask them if they're all doing okay. And that generally worked out? That worked okay. Um, you know, we, I, I would say we were slower than we were in person. Yeah. Um, for many different reasons. We didn't do everything that I think we normally would have done, but we muddled through and, and, and it worked out. Right. And now we just need to refine our techniques and try and muddle through in the fall again. That's right. <laughs> Is there anything that you want to share? You know, I think I've probably some... shared at this point. <laughs> no, you never overshare, Brian. You're always very taciturn in your responses. So, must <laughs> I have a couple of views, but it's too early here. Thank you very much to all of you for listening to today's conversation on the Pogel Podcast. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Pogel practitioner Wayne Pearson. Please join us next time as we think out loud with Pogel educators, researchers, and others working to transform teaching and learning for the 21st century.